set. Probably construction showing up. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always. They just finished the pool, though, so uh, this might be, like, uh, outdoor work. Oh, shit. Maybe they're going to do, like, leaf blowers out there. You know, it doesn't surprise me. They say, I'm pretty sure statistically, uh, Seattle is the most under-construction city in America. Uh, I I know at least that they have the most uh, active uh, cranes of any city in the country. Yeah. Well, it never ends. There's always streets under construction. It's never been like there's a part of the city not under construction. Yeah. Just so much rapid growth here. It's almost single-handedly because of your apartment complex. uh, They get that reputation. They've had at least a few weeks of building, um, months of building the pool. I mean, it was a whole project. Is anyone even going to use the pool? Did you use the pool before? I don't use the pool in my apartment. I think I've said that before. It'll be at least a year until it's open again with COVID <laughs> and everything. Um, at least it looks nice now. It lights up at night and changes different colors from like red, blue, green. I wonder how much pools actually add to the uh, you know value of an apartment <laughs> complex. Like they how must. much more they can charge rent because they have a pool. Going by my prices, at least two thousand dollars more. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice bit about the the pool. I hope you're going to keep that in. (laughs) I might. uh... Well, happy Friday, everyone, and uh, welcome back to the Twin Geek Cast. We have David returning from his stint on the Daydream Cast. Uh, We discovered shortly thereafter that uh, (laughs) David is a major weeb. it doesn't come through on this podcast because he doesn't watch anime, but all the video games you play are very Japanese-centric. I think you're an otak, otaku is what they call them. You're, you're digging up my uh, my shameful past here. I thought I buried that with all my other uh, regrettable high school decisions. <laughs> we all make a, a lot of regrettable high school decisions, but most of us don't take them and record them on video game shows later. That's so. true. <laughs> But but in all fairness, I think you had enough damning evidence of me anyway when you posed me in front of the anime section of Movie Madness and then took a picture and shared it everywhere. It was great. We we went and saw all the great things they had, like the the line from Citizen Kate, all these all these large uh, miniature sets, and uh, the one thing I take a picture of you in front of the the big anime section next to some. Uh, like lolly genre or something. You, it's like you caught me off guard. Like you, you kind of like threw me over there, like for a brief second, and caught me. Like I think my face in the pose is a little bit of like <laughs> confusion, and but but it was enough to capture the name above it and stuff. And then you could blackmail me forever with that. That's the only reason I still do this show is that Calvin is, is threatens to uh, spread that picture everywhere and yeah. uh, sully my name if I don't. I have continue. it ready to go. I have a composed tweet ready at any time. So. Uh, <laughs> That's how we keep this show going. Uh, I couldn't get you to talk about anime today, but we have the next best thing, which is a American uh, horror cartoon. Yeah, it's it's close to anime, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's animated. Yeah, uh, same same thing. I I feel like there's a, a lot of anime that we should probably get to on this podcast, like maybe Akira and some of the key yeah, ones. It, fe- it feels like you got to talk about Akira. If you're going to talk about like, uh, especially films, either that or like Miyazaki, those are the yeah. two animated film types that people know. It's either Miyazaki or Akira. <laughs> you see maybe Ghost like, in the Shell too. Yeah, maybe like Ghost in the Shell 2 is pretty prominent on like anime lists. And uh, uh, there's a lot of good anime, but only a few that... We could really podcast about 
Yeah, your your relationship with anime I think is interesting because you were conversely anti anti anime, but also sometimes the most enthusiastic <laughs> anime lover I've ever met. Uh, you know, I'm I don't know what to believe. <laughs> I became the ambassador of anime for a year, which is really confusing in some of our communities. I've become the the real champion of anime, which is really confusing since I've only seen Cowboy Bebop and Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> But I think those are the two that you should see anyway. So in some way, I'm an expert. Yeah, I mean, you know, if the, the two you've seen are the only two that, you know, you can recommend uh, to people. <laughs> I also sure. like Bacchano. That's that's a weird one about like uh, trains in like steampunk Chicago and chocolates and uh, really good aesthetic. Uh, those are the three I know. <laughs> Bacchano is a weird third one to know because I feel like that's more culty. I think so. Uh, I think I remember hearing about that one back in my anime days. But uh, thankfully, I, I left that behind. I only dipped into my my reservoir of memories a little bit for the the DD Cast show, and uh, I'm back here to talk about uh, real art movies. Of course, no more Baka. No, you're all about the Baka. Yes, you should cut that line. That was oof. <laughs> That's a keeper. Um, anyway, so we, have, uh, uh, we have other animated news here that uh, Barry Jenkins is uh, directing a, a prominent Disney property, uh, very prestigious in critic circles. Makes sense that he would go for um, uh, his last two films, like uh, Moonlight, and uh, it, it seems like a direct follow-up to Moonlight, doesn't it? In some way, spiritual successor. Yeah, well, you know, when you're inheriting the the mantle that, uh, you know, uh, John Favreau left for you, I think it, it tells a really important story, you know, of uh, the the black cultural identity that yeah. these films are, are pushing forth, of course, and that are very close to Barry Jenkins. I don't, this this seems like a an odd move. I mean, I, I see the, the logic in it, but it seems a, a little bit like a, a very corporate Disney kind of move. And, uh, of course, they're making a sequel to this highly uh piece of crap review <laughs> no i mean who liked it who i mean like like of kevin. critics <laughs> kevin reviewed it favorably for our website did he so uh, yeah. no well i mean i didn't watch it either but <laughs> yeah, i i think like the tech is so far ahead of its time that it is something that's going to be like in the future we'll look back and say uh innovator in this way but that doesn't mean it's good in any way oh you said it you, you said the word <laughs> I'll, I'll cut that. Um, we've, we've never mentioned... <laughs> Just censor it. Just put like a beep over it. <laughs> Before the podcast. If I could allude to anything, I'll, I'll beep it out. <laughs> um, I, I think it's okay. Barry Jenkins could take this on as long as he takes pride in his work. I, I guess I just I don't know what there is. It's not like the actual sequels to the the animated film were anything worth raving about. What's this one? Is it gonna be that? I didn't actually look at the the article when you sent it to me. Like it was just very last minute here. You're like bam headline, and I was like, oh that's odd. Yeah, deadline reported it just this morning. Tuesday we're recording before the debate, so there's gonna be less of uh, less than you'd think of that kind of talk. But uh, um, there's. I I think it's about Simba's pride is what I'm gleaming from it, that it's going to be uh, something else and uh, it's not going to be like two and a half or whatever it was. It's one and a half, two. Yeah, the, the sequels to that are also just, yeah. Kingdom Hearts numbered. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts took a lot of inspiration from the sequels. Dream Drop Distance. <laughs> <laughs> 
How do we get back on anime shit again? <laughs> well, I think you, you conjured it by doing The World Ends With Us. So. <laughs> um, speaking of anime, uh, Aaron Sorkin has a new movie out. I think it's what? coming out later this week or next week. Why do you even bother with a transition like that? It's, it's so corny. Uh, but yes, uh, Aaron Sorkin, uh, who is doing more uh, courtroom drama films, how many of those has he done now? I think all of them. I think he's every been every behind. film. Mo- yeah. Money Moneyball was a courtroom drama. He began with uh, Anatomy of Murder. Um, Twelve Angry Men was one of his. Uh, he's been around <laughs> for a long time. Did he, a lot, did he, a lot he, fewer panties in this one than Anatomy did, of Murder. Did you know that uh, Aaron Sorkin's pen name was a uh, Harper Lee? He wrote a uh, To Kill a Mockingbird uh, under oh, yeah. this, under a female pseudonym. Uh, that's really daring. <laughs> it's really brave when men do that. <laughs> men get so few opportunities in Hollywood. I, I really like to see that kind of bravery. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of men, this movie is full of them. <laughs> it's a. It's about seven men, as the title implies. The uh, trial of the Chicago Seven, and uh, there's uh, there's one woman who kind of tricks them with their uh, feminine delights, and uh, and they buy into her for a minute, but she's quickly discarded. So. Uh, a film all about men from Aaron Sorkin, um, directed by him. So, uh, male director, male writer, male cast. Uh, it's just a celebration of Hollywood. Is it a? <laughs> this is his uh, second directorial project, right? Like a couple yeah. years ago, he did a uh, Molly's Game. That was like his first uh, transition into this because he's been a prolific writer for quite some time now. Uh, I think you know he's really coming back into. People are discussing him a lot more now because uh, all of our uh, politicians, you know, or at least our democratic politicians are doing what they do today because they love the West Wing when that was on. And, it unfortunately uh, shaped a lot of dialogue intrinsically in politics. I mean, I think you look at it like political cartoon now, but that's all their inspiration. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to consider how this thing, this one, this brainchild of this one uh, kind of uh, idealist uh, person uh, kind of shaped how our entire, uh, like half of our country is is operating right now. And uh, if you if you listen to him today in interviews and stuff, he's he's pretty naive, I think, which is is kind of uh, concerning when when he's uh, dictated so much of that. And and I think it's a, another great example of how the media, and particularly television and movies, can really warp uh, like the entire you know country's uh, cultural understanding of something it is uh that that's how powerful of a medium it really is and we've seen that of course uh, that kind of propagandistic work uh in many many iterations over the entire hundred plus years of its uh creation and this one also very politically linked of course it's about the um 1968 democratic convention and uh of course, back then you were starting to see like the shift where Democrats and uh, Republicans were trading places. So uh, it's the the opposite of the politics you recognize today. Um, there, is it, it was. The, I just want I just want to mention that real quick because I think it's so funny. Isn't it so funny when you uh, if if you ever have encountered a a conservative who tries to argue that the the Democrats are the party of the the KKK or you know we're yeah. you know the Republicans they're you know we stand for the ideals of Lincoln and have like absolutely zero context for the history of how parties have have changed over time in the many iterations which both the the Democrats and Republicans have gone through like anyone who actually 
looks at history, even on like the, the very basic scale and understands that one party is for, you know, more of a, a state's, you know, power versus the federal power. And you can see like the very clear difference in how things have shifted. Like you don't even actually have to look over history. Like if you just look at those two time plate, you know, places and say, which one would have done which? It's very obvious. So it's, it's uh, very disingenuous and <laughs> dumb I to heard. continue to make that argument. There are so many events and every candidate shifts what policy is. I mean, Trump's Republicans are so different from the Bush's Republicans and so on. Well, I mean, yeah. It's almost a completely unnoticeable party. Like, what, well, well that's, that's what happens when you want to conflate everything into an either or option, you know, like, and that's the issue with party politics. And when you try and push a singular identity onto both of them it's it's not how things work but that's what the system continues to uh benefit from and uh you know when, when we continue to push these agendas this was um originally being developed by uh spielberg like uh, over a decade ago uh, it's long in gestation and it was just sitting there for a long time uh, sorkin uh, first arrived at it with a dinner with spielberg and was like, a, there's a courtroom in it. This is enough for me. This is all I really need to make a movie. And that proves to be true. He's perfectly at home. After Molly's game, um, after Molly's game, Spielberg said, yeah, I'll hand it to you. So he got the director reins for this. And uh, it seems like it's going to be a teleplay a lot of times. That's how it feels. Oh, I, I, I think uh, Sorkin, is, as a writer, is someone like uh, we can compare to another great play writer turned director, uh, David Mamet. And uh, uh, he's he's very similar in that way. That is a lot of like bombastic, you know, highly worded dialogue, uh, you know, with a lot of flourish uh, to it. Uh, and and then as a director, it's like it's less lean. He's obviously more of a you know a writer than a director in in that case. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think that you like this one because well, maybe not interesting. You know, not really because I like all his stuff. Really, I mean, right, right. But you're you're such an anti-champion. I don't know what other word oh, to yes. use for uh, courtroom dramas, even though. Uh, I can't think of any that you don't like. <laughs> it's hard to find one that's about court that I dislike. I'll say that when they appear on movies that aren't about court and don't have any litigious grounding, I find that really distracting. If they if they just like pop up in a film and there's really no grounding or explore, exploration of court and why there should be justice, I, th I feel like that's some bullshit. But I uh, think we, we talked about it. We talked about it most recently, I think, when we did A Place in the Sun, because that one builds up to a, a courtroom finale. And, and I remember when you were watching that, you're like, uh-oh. But now I think you just kind of lean into it sometimes. And you're like, if, if a courtroom pops up at all, you're like, F. <laughs> it's and that one's really good, too, because you have like the boat in the courtroom and it structures it around other plot pieces. It's really ridiculous and melodramatic. And, and that's why it works. Like, I think that's possibly why you you don't favor courtroom dramas and films that otherwise aren't revolving around them because they they lean themselves like, like they lend themselves to being over the top and melodramatic uh yeah i, I think a, a, a good example when we talked about it was um the the capra film which uh it, god damn it I, well, why am i forgetting his name uh mr deeds mr deeds mr. goes deeds. to town which I like. I mean, I I admit that one's a little less fun because it, it kind of drags a bit, but I think it still serves its purpose. But in general, like, because I've also pushed you to watch more courtroom drama specific films like Anatomy of Murder earlier this year, which you seem to enjoy a great deal. 
And I think 12 Angry Men is one of the best films, but it's not quite a courtroom. It takes place with the, with the um, what do you call them? The... Yeah, well, well, again, I guess that kind of comes down to how we define courtroom dramas and such. Yeah. But, you know, for, for an in-depth discussion on that, you know, everyone can go back and look on the episode we did on 12 Angry Men. But yeah. but Sorkin really I think kind of uh, first carved out his name with the the court and drama with uh, a few good men, which sure. uh, which is still a fantastic film which I'd love to talk about sometime more. Uh, although obviously not not exactly realistic in terms of anything. <laughs> um, it's it's a lot of fun though. I think it demonstrates what is is so good about Sorkin's writing. Uh, again, it's, it's it's not necessarily realistic, but it it displays like this extremity of emotion that comes out well in in courtroom sequences. Certainly, there's a reason that the the whole Jack Nicholson bit, the you can't handle the truth speech, is so uh, famous. I I think we talk about a lot of movies that land at the right time, but of course, this has a lot of uh, concurrence with like current events. We're looking at things like uh, what it means to find legal defense for protests and. Um, uh, what it means to protest politically and how to defend yourself against that and uh, especially what race means uh bobby seal famously is the is the defendant who got tried with like a 15 counts of uh, condemnation court or whatever you call it and he was a uh, it's just a, such a famous case because it's so explosive like they eventually have his mouth wrapped up and he can't even talk during the court uh, uh, a lot of racism at the time they're protesting vietnam and it's a, it's such a stacked cast. Um, it's hard right now because we're starting with Eddie Redmayne, who's a <laughs> he's come out vocally in support of uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a difficult week for that. Didn't read the room. Look, he, uh, he's got to keep his job for the Fantastic Beast series. I understand why he uh, yeah. had to come out in in support, but you know that's just he he's gonna dip in popularity with the crowd now. I think the whole uh, culture is against. Uh, uh, J.K. Rowling right now, so I don't think that this is uh, going to be a good, you know, move in the long term for him. But in the short term, I think it's a, uh, yeah, I, I see why he did it. Yeah, it makes sense. Just saying that everyone else on the other side is just as bad as someone who's transphobic, though it rubs everyone the wrong way. Of course, uh, read the room, Eddie. Um, <laughs> other than that, we have a uh, Sasha Baron Cohen doing maybe his best performance yet. He's incredible, and I think why I've rated it so high. Uh, just really transformative. He's so able to embody this guy. Yeah. Abby Hoffman is his character. I think uh, a lot of us have are under undervalued Sasha Baron Cohen since he hasn't yeah. he hasn't been really well utilized in a long time. Uh, I'm hoping that his new Bullrat film that we <laughs> finally heard announced uh, will be something of a comeback. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I remember when I was seeing. I was seeing the comments on it and I thought it was so dumb like somewhere on, on Reddit I think and someone said that you know that they were concerned because Bullrat is such a timeless film and that, that it was going to get too wrapped up in modern politics with Trump stuff and I was like what the fuck are you talking about like that was an entirely like anti-Bush administration film did you even it see it <laughs> that's completely the total of what it is I mean look at the name of this um Borat, Gift of Pornographic Monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently dis diminished nation of Kazakhstan. I mean, that's a mouthful. It won't even fit on our editor on the site. So right. Well, I mean, Borat too. Yeah. Well, the, the first the first film is you know similar. You know what it's, it his is. full name is Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. 
Now it's diminished. So uh, the the nation's been diminished. I, I like that we got Mike Pence. It's not just the shot, Trump. Uh, we have to go for Pence in some of our media. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting choice. Well, I don't know. I'll be interested to see how it goes. Uh, I haven't watched the first film in a long, long time, so I don't know how well it, it will have uh, aged for me personally, but uh, I'll be interested to see this one because I, I like to see politically challenging art when it's happening, you know, Yes, uh, very nice. Um, we also have uh, Jeremy Strong in this, who's uh, hot off succession. Uh, so we all wonder what he's going to do, especially like Kevin and I are just a obviously big succession head. So we had to see what part he had. Uh, he gets an egg thrown at him and he uh, catches it, carries it around, talks about his egg. He's like a stoned out uh, hippie guy. Uh, just everyone's really good. Mark Rylance is great. Uh, that. Joseph Gordon Levitt returns, yeah, which is all the letterbox reviews before releases. Oh, at least he's employed again. Yeah, I mean, but isn't that the same thing people said about like that airline pilot movie he did too? It is, yeah. But this is the only one that he's like worked on within the last two years. His last two movies, uh, the the flight movie and the Project Power, were both like twenty sixteen to eighteen shoots. Mm. Oh, and he's yeah, good. At, um, he's good in this. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Everyone's good and dialed in. Um, there's uh, yeah, yeah, Abdul Mateen too is great. I mean, everyone just shows up, and it's a great ensemble. Like uh, last year, we had Parasite, and this year, obviously, most effective ensemble. I have to make a category for that, and I don't see any others coming that that even stand a chance. Well, that's because everything is canceled, you know, and moved off to next year. What like I saw West Side Story got moved, and. Yeah. Uh, what else got delayed? I'm trying to remember everything now. Well, everything but two things. We have Mank and then we have uh, Nomadland coming and that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, Mank was, I think, always probably going to come because of uh, uh, Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> this is the best time to be Netflix because they're, you know, they're, they can just rake in all the views. They were going to release it all to Net uh, Netflix directly anyway. They're not working off that same bespoke model and they don't have to look at what consumer needs are because their needs are on their couch. So. I, I'm still very concerned for Mank, especially after those, like what we got uh, four screenshots. It doesn't look good to me from like like shooting in a black and white perspective. You know, I um, I don't know. You say that a lot about modern black and whites, by the way. You're well, always like, what's I know, perspective? Why would they do it? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a why. It's like, it's, I don't think people know how to shoot in black and white natively anymore. I feel like everything is done like, uh, you know, it, a lot of it looks post converted, which mm. is, which is concerning, like, because it's such a rarely done form of photography. Now, I don't think people know how to light black and white photography very much I think, anymore. I think we saw the way with the lighthouse, like just shoot on, oh, yeah. on cameras from like 1935. And <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's more than that. Cause it is, it's a different lighting setup and things, but obviously the lighthouse was one of the best examples in recent memory. Like you can use that as a very easy contrast, but again, they're, they're production photos. So I'll give them benefit yeah. of the doubt and wait and see. I'm also just like concerned with where the material comes from, how biased it's going to be, what it's going to do in regards to Wells as a, as a persona, you know, mm. It's. I see a lot of opportunities for Trials of Chicago 7 to get a few nominations at least. It'll probably win on a year like this in some categories. And it could be like a greenback case where this like just wins the whole thing anyway in his Netflix entry. It's not going to be the film we think it is that gets Netflix the first Oscar anyway. Yeah, it looks like uh, Bad Boys for Life has some competition now. Finally, yeah. <laughs> I don't know which is the better ensemble, uh, Bad Boys for Life or this, but... Uh, uh, Hot competition.
this year. Well, uh, speaking of Oscars, I've got a good contender for documentary. Oh, feels good, man. You, yeah. You yeah. So uh, obviously, I'm the first person to see this movie and sing its praises. Uh, nobody else has, has gotten the chance to yet. Uh, but I thought this was this was really fantastic. I finally sat down and watched it the other day, and uh, you know, after seeing lots of good good things about it, hearing about it, being interested in it. I was I was really surprised because uh, I think this kind of subject is very hard to talk about. Uh, internet culture is just such a kind of unique and uh, very odd history, and it moves so fast that it's really hard to to pinpoint everything. But the fact that there's so much, uh, you know, very specific research, and that they take the time to explain what things like memes are, and what 4chan is, and, and it's is kind of influencing things, uh, I think is really helpful for someone who is not as internet savvy as even someone like me. Um, and and also the way, of course, in which it deals with the very volatile, you know, history in which. Uh, Pepe the Frog has been co-opted and uh, mutated into this symbol of hate in an awful, horrible, heartbreaking way. It's so good at utilizing the idea of the comic books um, and then turning it into animation. Like the animation's really fresh and, and it looks nice and Matt Fury's given some kind of redemption here. I don't know if he'll ever get absolution from this, but uh, I feel like this is the closest he'll ever get other than the court cases. I was really impressed because uh, Arthur Jones, the director, not only is this his first film, uh, which is incredible, I think, but uh, he, he also did the a lot of the animation for the film as well. Oh, wow. Um, I thought it was likely coming from Matt Fury himself or something. I thought it was, uh, that, that's crazy. Yeah, no, I believe, uh, you know, uh, Fury obviously, I think, supplied the base material, the comics and stuff, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that he himself is an animator. He's a He's a comic artist. Yeah, which is a little bit different but yeah uh, i'm imagining that's i would like to know a little bit more about the background of the development of the film because it seems like the the director there had a really great relationship with fury and establishment and that's how he was kind of able to springboard off of this but i'm just i was really impressed as well with how the film was able to track the history of the mutation of, of pepe from 4chan you know all the way along the way like how it caught fire some of the people that got to interview were really disconcerting to me like they got those <laughs> those bitcoin dealers who are like the biggest douchebags ever and they're so unself-aware that they don't realize how ridiculous or they, they don't even care how yeah. they, like there's this fucking chump that drives up in a lamborghini showing off his rare pepe that he made like millions of dollars off of which is well <laughs> a pepe a pepe bought him a lamborghini so i mean it's such a weird thing that economy comes into this frog like I feel like it touches every facet of like social construction that could come from mimetic culture and why mimetic culture works politically. I mean, I think it's fascinating and necessary. Yeah. Oh, and it really dives into it. And again, like it's really gutting at points in the story it to is. really just see how, you know, Fury, because he he's just seems like this unassuming, you know, very nice and, and truly like, like the definition of like an artist, like the, he takes these steps to try and like, you know, win win back the character of Pepe, like like killing him off in a comic strip, for for instance. Like it's like this obviously like this noble artistic act that he feel will be helpful for for himself and also do something very community. And that that's obviously not how 
the internet culture works, it only kind of, you know, invigorates the, the alt-right even more because then they're like, we've won this, this character. But obviously that's like a very personal, you know, choice for, for him to try and like heal and mourn the loss of this, you know, very personal character that he drew. And I just, I can't help but feel bad because I understand that, you know, that, that kind of artistic and emotionally drawn feeling because he does use he he sees art as a conduit for for feelings and emotion there's a i i mean there's so much of him within pepe like it, it seems to be his whole mood when he's on camera he kind of looks almost frog-like i mean it's taken from like his girlfriend's butt and his personality yeah. and, i mean just to have that out there and, and supporting white nationalists is a really scary thing to have your art mutated in a in a way that could go anywhere but then a there's that beautiful like counter revolution that I didn't know about either. So I'm really glad I got to see the frog's redemption story. And uh, also that I don't know anything about like 4chan. I've never visited the site. So I don't, I don't even know what it is until this movie. Uh, it gave me a lot of background on things. Like you said, I have no idea about a lot of internet things. I stay inside a small circle. I, th- I think it's interesting that of all of the, the internet things that you've you've been a part of, that 4chan never crossed your your sphere there. <laughs> I, I think I, it scares me. I think that kind of anonymity kind of scares me. I don't it, like that. Well, obviously, obviously, it's a very destructive thing. But and and you can see what it's bred. I think the the documentary does a really great job at the 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 psycho analysis of uh, how this in, empowers and invigorates and creates the community for troubled young you know men specifically and and how that radicalizes them and the anonymity of it uh you know it it really is like it's a breeding ground for the the darkest places of the internet but uh in concept it's it's not all bad like there's a bunch of boards on on 4chan and there are plenty that aren't insanely toxic like that um of, of I course, just feel well, like any of them could go that way at any second. I mean, that kind of thing just it frightens me. Having sure, I get. I think your identity. I think your fears are valid, and I don't recommend going to four chan necessarily for anything, especially now. Four chan was also like a more of a ten years ago thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what's so interesting to me is that like internet culture, like they say, it was so bright at one point, and everything was happy and like showing sunshine. And here's my next travel trip, and then. Uh, then and the then, culture started getting darker and it required darker means. I don't think I had, I had that understanding about why PP worked. Yeah, well, the, and that was the interesting thing, how they talked about it, how, like, there, there was this possessive nature around the character, an, an ironic possessive nature where all the, the 4chan people were, were like, you know, you can't take this character that we personally identify with, that we totally right. co-opted from another, you know, creator. And so they, they started... Uh, making him this this very volatile like triggering symbol you know and it just kind of that's how it spins out of control one of the biggest things they highlight which is really what the the kind of core slope is that creates radicalization on the internet is this idea of of irony it's unironic uh irony that that kind of happens where it's like winking and it's like an excuse to say oh you know we don't really mean you know it's just a joke that we're associating these things with you know well caricature do do symbols you know the problem is you can't be (laughs) ironic on purpose so that they're just being intentional yeah it's again it's, it's a facade the irony is a facade for genuine hate like you know they say it's not real but it comes from a place of realness and eventually like that facade just slips away into full hate and we see how that's grown and grown especially over the last four years in the uh the trump presidency which the with 
Pepe you can't get around because he was such an integral part of putting Trump into the White House, which is always dis- disheartening for me to see. Genuinely, like I, I had to stop the movie at some point because I'm just I, I turned to my fiance and say like it, I it literally makes me ashamed to see anything like about Trump and to watch him in any capacity. I just feel this deep well of shame within me and I don't want to deal with it uh, yeah. because I just I don't want to believe that it's real even after these these four years that things can be so brazenly corrupt and toxic and you know in bigoted uh, it, it, I can't believe that our, our country has slipped that way and that I'm in any way a part of it just even existing within it <laughs> it is hard to exist within the system maybe afterward you'll be able to look back and uh, be able to stomach some of that uh, <laughs> as you look through history i think you're also seeing that none of it's new now it's just spoken out loud sure but it's never been so brazenly stupid yeah. like he's just yeah, sad and and, it, and and that's the issue with it it's it's, it's so nakedly like moronic and and openly like bigoted and corrupted and 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 that's what's like so frustrating and it is this feeling of like powerlessness that you can't do anything like you can only yell and call it out so much and watch as nothing happens the wheels of the system don't turn even slightly uh so feels good man and uh i guess our site endorses biden <laughs> <laughs> i mean if that We're wasn't obvious to do it but let's do it <laughs> how many other time i mean if, if we haven't dragged his name enough how many times have i said like I, I bring up the burning example all the time where i just even that tiny clip of him in the beginning of the film and it enrages yeah. me of course yes go fucking vote for biden already <laughs> there was that point after the that spike lee movie black klansman where seeing trump just completely deflated my whole experience with the movie at that point i wasn't ready for it and i was still thinking about kkk and everything and i just walked out just like fuck this movie you know was it's kind of similar thing where where they have where Spike has him pop up in uh, the Five Bloods, and we talked about it there too, and how just I, I don't know. Again, it's it's one of those things where it's like you kind of have to deal with it. Like I don't get mad when I see yeah. Nixon pop up in a in a movie, even though he's a giant not, piece yeah. of shit too. But but at I, that time, you might have you might have got you might have felt something really strong at that time when Nixon was in office. And I like, imagine I don't see it right now. I imagine. I, I just hope that I can harbor the same hatred for Donald Trump my entire life that Robert Altman did for Nixon. <laughs> that's that's my, he, he's my idol in that regard. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be so many Trump movies and uh, TV shows that uh, we're just at the start of it. And we'll be discussing at least the next 10 years. These Trump thing, movies. What's that thing? Isn't Brendan Gleeson playing Trump in, in something? Yeah. I don't remember is, what it is. Is but... that the Showtime show? There's a few of them coming just in the next few months. <sighs> I don't know. Like, like just the fact that that I'm I'm already thinking about this in like a historical context. Like when when people tell the biography of Trump in the history books and his this ridiculous like corrupt you know like grifting throughout you know the the new york real estate market and then like the ridiculous 2016 election that put him into power and all this bullshit like it's just it's so uh, i i I can't even imagine it because it feels so unreal that this was an actual thing that happened because it's just so (laughs) stupid and ridiculous like even just from like a how how a president was memed into office like quite literally that's i mean the the documentary does a really great job of demonstrating that how this is like the first election 
that the internet had a significant impact on i yeah, think of course. well obama of course like but that's oh, in yeah, a more yeah. straightforward way but this is a this is a manipulation of our system it, well, it, well what it was really is horrifying they they really highlight really well in the document uh, documentary how the the door was able to be opened up to a an untapped market of young voters in order to to push him further up you know into, into you know a valid uh, uh office there and and that is that interesting thing that you know finally the the kind of the key of the internet was was unlocked there admittedly in the worst way possible yeah. but it was and and so it makes you wonder how this election is going to go as well as we're coming up on it. Uh, uh, dear God, I hope it goes well. I can't handle any more uh, breaking down of our democracy, man. Of course. Uh, hopefully tonight goes well, and hopefully we have better uh, positions and hope next week. I don't know. If, if I'm not here next week, it's probably because I hid myself into a bunker because the debates went horribly. <laughs> That's fair enough. I'll just be here talking to myself about happy death day if you're gone. <laughs> it's the only way you're going to get it on the podcast so <laughs> uh, speaking of the horror of our country uh, uh what kind of horror movies are you watching next month oh let's see let's uh look at my list here i know uh you know a lot of the same stuff of course i like I like you kind of watch the same stuff. movies every year <laughs> i kind of do i kind of do like i mean I'll, I'll get into it more when we talk about monster house here but you know there's a there's a good collection of favorites that i like returning to uh, you know, stuff like Adam's Family and Beetlejuice and Rocky Horror. <laughs> Whereas everyone else treats Halloween like, a, like you know, like they're going to explore like 30 new territories of horror. You kind of treat it like the average like Christmas movie. Like, oh, this is traditional and it's my comfort watch. Well, yeah, because it gets me in the spirit. I think that because for me, Halloween is less about horror movies specifically and, and more of what I like to categorize as Halloween movies. They have to be spooky and and kind of like fall atmospheric and and they have that that balance of fun and and like childlike you know uh you know uh adventure and stuff with mm. the horror and the macabre and stuff and it's a it's a difficult balance to find all the times like and and also again like the atmospheric element is a big thing like i would i would never watch the thing in october because it just it's so wintry you know it doesn't have any yeah. fall aesthetic to me uh, I guess I don't need the I don't need what I watch to match the time of year, honestly. But, well, it's not it's not like I, I need to. I just I like to because it gets me in the the spirit and it makes the whole month feel you know more more Halloween ish. You know, and th th there's a specific feeling, spirit, um, you know, atmosphere to to the holiday specifically that I try and replicate throughout the whole month. But I also use it to explore new horror stuff. Uh, like for instance, this year I have a number of uh, silent horror films on on my list to check out. Uh, stuff like Murnau's Faust and uh, The Fall of the House of Usher by Epstein. Uh, and I also okay. have uh, some more Stephen King like miniseries to check out. That's what my my fiance wanted to see. So like Salem's Lot and uh, might get to the the other version of The Shining that uh, I haven't I seen the other version. Yeah, I think it was uh, to uh, who directed it. Is it Mick Garris? I think it was Mick Garris. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at right now. Yeah, it's Mick Garris. Checking out then. Uh, I'll see. I've been reading it as well. I'm not as big a fan of the book here, but I'll, I'll see how <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> I'll see how the the version goes. I'm interested in in seeing how it all plays out. I doubt it'll be better than 
uh, you know, the Kubrick Shining. I know you hate yeah. it, though. I mean, I give it a seven, but also hate it. <laughs> <laughs> For the purpose of the podcast and to make Tyler mad, I think I, I think I went in on it. Uh, you certainly did to a point where even <laughs> I had to kind of like, all right, buddy. <laughs> and Tyler hasn't been back since. Look at how that works. <laughs> um, I'm looking at a, a lot of Japanese horror and a, a few mixed Asian horrors. I'm looking at some Korean film and Japanese film, trying to fill in a couple of gaps. Uh, I want I want more range on my horror taste. So, uh, looking at stuff like Onibaba, Tetsu, The Iron Man, uh, Quiden. Um, I've already watched ten films for October, and it hasn't started yet. Uh, I have to cover festivals and watch a lot of short films next month. So uh, that's that's another reason why I did this. But those will also be horror films, so I really didn't need to. Uh, yeah, but I think it's good to branch out like that. Uh, you know, I know everyone's favorite Japanese horror film is, of course, uh, Obayashi's Haosu. Yeah, also incredible. I'm gonna rewatch that as well. Yeah, I have, I have a couple. I've got uh, the Wailing is one I hear really great things okay. about as far as Korean horror. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, uh, really nice movie. Uh, a strange pacing for me, but I really like it. I'll, I'll be checking that one out as as well. I'm also looking at like some American, well, not so much classics, but older American ones that I've missed, like Halloween Two. I'm I'm very very curious. Oh, to hear I thought. About. I thought you meant like actually older, like <laughs> I, I, not not so much older, like Videodrome. I'm looking at uh, one of my cult favorites. Let's scare Jessica to death. That's coming to Criterion, and I'm really fucking psyched about that. I want everyone to watch that. There's this one I wish they added. Uh, I saw last year. I went and saw it at the the Hollywood. It was like an actual classic. You know, uh, older older Hollywood. Oh, not one of these fake classics. No, like, no. I mean, when we're talking about like quote unquote classic hollywood you know we're referring to like the 40s and 50s and such is, is usually what we you know consider that term and for horror uh they have a lot less you know the the horror films of the quote-unquote classic era uh are really like a lot of like sci-fi horrors in the 50s yeah. like your invasions of the body snatchers and the blob and such but but earlier there's some interesting ones like between the universal period of the those monster movies we talked about last year and the sci-fi movement of the 50s it's it's less so there you've got the val luton films of course in the 40s but uh aside from that there's a lot less to pull from but one of my favorites that i found last year was a film called uh the uninvited which is a really okay. cool kind of atmospheric ghost story uh starring ray milland and I thought it was uh, really interesting because you don't see as many like that. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. It's actually on Criterion. They've released it, but I'm surprised they didn't bring it to the streaming channel this time. Uh, of everything I've already seen, uh, Kuroneku, of course, about like the cat ghosts and uh, um, literally like Black Cat in Japan. Uh, very classic horror and ghost story that almost feels like Kurosawa in its shots. Very floaty, atmospheric. Um I also did a Lloyd Kaufman already, uh, class in Newcomb <laughs> High, because uh, I just seen a Shakespeare shitstorm. So, so that's a lot of fun, but but also bad. Yeah. Do Do you think you enjoy Kaufman films at all? There, I know they're not for I can't uh, tell. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if I could be a trauma traumaite or, or not. Um, can you? I I don't know if I can. But uh, you know, I have a hard time with with bad movies in general. We know that, like even intentionally bad or like schlocky stuff, like it's. I I just rather watch something that's like good, you know, like like un unquestionably good. Uh, you know, I feel very... like exploitation also isn't your genre. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess conversely it doesn't work out because my you know before they left uh, 
my fiance watched Blood Feast, which was like <laughs> okay. the first first of those. And I know like all of you guys did too, because it's like, oh, it's yeah. the first, you know, like like slasher gore film or whatever, you know, in history or uh once yeah. kind of like the production uh code disappeared. Uh and you guys all were like, ah shit, but you know, it's important piece of history. <laughs> But she yeah. actually, she enjoyed it, and she was basically just like, it's got tits, it's enough for me. I want. <laughs> if I said that in a review, it would be a little bit different than your fiancé saying it. Yeah. It would be not... taken differently. Yeah. Uh, she... Speaking of tits, <laughs> uh, I really like The Love Witch. Um, lots of tits, lots of tits and ass in there. Uh, yeah. I, I heard great things about that one, like from a, an aesthetic realm as well. It's, it's shot like a, a very colorful 1950s film, isn't it? It's almost like the Technicolor, yeah, of like 50s, 60s, where it's like very bright, vivid, lush colors, almost like a 70s floaty dread as well to the horror. And it's all sexual with overacting, uh, uh, directed by a woman, and it, it has like sex as liberation, feminism as its core theme. So that's a lot Anna, of fun. Anna Biller is her name. Yeah. Just, just um, so it's not a woman. <laughs> Anna Biller also said that her entire crew hated the movie and hated making it. And that's her experience as a female director in total is that people don't want to make your movie and they hate doing it. But the cast liked it so, and the audience loves it. So that's something. Yeah, it's, I think it definitely has a big cult following now, which is uh, good to hear. I'm glad you enjoyed it uh, as well. Uh, do you have anything? What's What's the film you're most looking forward to seeing this year? Oh, God. Um, I think it must be Videodrome, which I really want to podcast for. I think I think we can manage that. Um, hopefully, we, we've got lots of ideas kind of floating around, so yeah, hopefully we, we make that one happen. But I love Videodrome. I think it's the the most like identifiably Cronenberg Cronenberg film. Uh, it's it, I think it hits all of his uh, tenets, you know, pretty exactly. Not not uh, it's hard to say if it's his best. It kind of is, but also maybe not. Like so, I don't know, something like The Fly. I think is just so perfect even though it's a little bit more like commercially driven than Videodrome. Maybe video Crash or something would be best. <laughs> it's hard to say. This, I mean, he's got so many great films, of course. Like the Cronenberg style is so perfectly sketched out. But I think Videodrome is his first like truly unquestionably great film, you know, because he had his uh, run of some, you know, rougher ones like Scanners and, and Rabbit and... Uh, the Brood. I know lots of people like The Brood, but yeah, I like Shivers a lot. Um, yeah, but I, th I think the Videodrome is really where he first comes into like this is his defining moment. I'm excited to watch some trash too. <laughs> yeah. I want to see like the. I want to explore a, a Nightmare on Elm Street next month. That's one of my goals. It's it's got some good ones in in there. I don't know. It's not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, as a series, it's better than the Friday series for sure. But you know, it's it's not. Uh... Well, anything is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even the first film, like it's it's defining and creative, but it, you know, as a film itself, it's a little hokey yeah. in in places, and the story is not the best. Yeah, and and like I think the best thing the later films have are like they have some good ideas that that have good execution in moments but you know as a whole the series is still shaky right uh, and two is going to be one of my next few films so i'm really excited based on the cult following and reevaluation two, yeah. 
two has been getting a major reevaluation lately, uh, greater appreciation. I don't know how that'll hold up. That, that, but that's the thing with horror films as well, and generally, probably more than any other genre, the mediocre ones still have something for the community that, that enjoys them. Like, you could just hone in on this one thing that is slightly interesting that it does and the whole they all serve the an audience finish. right yeah like, like, no matter what if it's if it's scary but bad it serves an audience if there's good gore and it's bad that's a direct audience I if mean, it's got tits that's all we need if it's a bad <laughs> film that's also a horror audience i mean that's a genre itself as long as it's not boring i mean uh, boring is i think your worst offense in horror certainly uh or in any movie i would argue just yeah. don't be boring <laughs> For me, like horror is like that anxious buildup and getting involved in a plot and just feeling something like pervade it, pervasive in it. So boring is the worst offense. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think our pick for this week, I would say, is uh, not boring. In fact, uh, I, I love this film a lot. <laughs> um, I like it. I like it more all the time because I've you recommended it to me and I watched it with Ezra straight away and she attached to it. I, I was really surprised, but she got it right away and was way into it. She loves the house. Yeah, so Monster House, uh, I believe I, I had you, I told you to watch it last year for the first time, right? Has it only been that long? I feel like I've seen it 20 times. <laughs> I think it was, maybe it maybe makes... two years ago. Uh, surprisingly, two years would make sense, I think. That That's about as far as it goes back. Uh, we didn't know each other before then, so I couldn't have recommended it to you. <laughs> but Mon Monster House has been a favorite of mine since I saw it as a kid. I think I saw it even in theaters. Uh, but I think nowadays it's, it's largely not remembered, or if it's remembered, it's kind of lumped in with the shitty Robert Zemeckis motion capture films like Polar Express yeah, and stuff. Uh, which I think is totally unfair because even though it, it's obviously still of its time in that regard, I think it, the the style of it is so much more defined and leaned into. So the weird faces and stuff actually work for the film and, and the kind of inherently already kind of spooky atmosphere of the film gives the, the kind of odd uh, style, you know, character styles there a little bit more credence than opposed to something that's supposed to be jovial, like a Christmas movie. Uh, you know, I mean, we, <laughs> it, it released at a hard time, right? We go back to 2006. We're looking at it next to cars and over the hedge and happy feet. So uh, that's, those are kind of like a, a very, very mellow, <laughs> very middle of the road animations that kind of overachieved in the box office. Well, this is kind of a surprise hit that was kind of destined for Cole. Like, it's one of the first motion capture animations, I believe, to even have an original story. So it has a lot going it's, for it. In that it's aspect. the only, I believe, or at least that's what I read. The like it was that release, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying to think. Is there anything else that's been done? Like all of Zemeckis' stuff is adaptations. Uh, who else is right. working in motion capture? <laughs> Just in, I, I mean, I guess you look at it like it's in video games and not so much movies. Like motion capture is like a big element of those stories but i i feel like for movies I, this also looks like that era of video game uh <laughs> it's it's fitting that you asked me to do it while i was playing mario 64 and sunshine because it looks like those games very well, I, low polygon yeah but there are some things like i would say uh you know they they focus a lot more of their animation efforts on the most important element which of course is the house and the house itself is very detailed and not like blocky as opposed, you know, in, in comparison to everything else, I would say it's a magnificently animated and they made sure to put all of their efforts really into making that thing as fully realized as possible. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with face. I, I thought the faces <laughs> were, 
well animated. <laughs> they, they, I think they are. Uh, again, especially compared to like the Zemeckis crap that everyone yeah. likes to hate on now. Um, <laughs> they and, do. It, and it's because they they lean into that style uh, more. Uh, but you know, the personality of the performers is still there. Like the the Nebercracker character looks and feels like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> That's a great well. thing. Getting Steve Buscemi put into motion capture is one of the film's great victories. He's he's the original. Like I, this came out, I think, even before. Uh, I think we we got to take the title away from Clint Eastwood in terms of "Get Off My Lawns, uh, Old Men," because I think it came before. First. Yeah, this. That, I think. Oh, uh, shit. I'm great. pretty sure that one was 2008. I'm gonna look That's up right. now. Yeah. So I don't no, like you're maybe. right. Yeah, this came before. Yeah. That's crazy because I thought it was just a reference to that. That that's great. Not this was before. So uh, you heard it here, Clint Eastwood's a hack. Yeah, um, <laughs> stealing from uh, badly animated po- polygonal kids' films. <laughs> the animation isn't bad, though. Like, I think it's a signature style. Like, it feels yeah. like it's a, I feel like it's a video game camera. Like, it's following them around in a certain way. And that the, the framing also has a few direct shots that, yeah. that feel like they're of a camera. That's that's the thing I was going to point out as well that probably doesn't get acknowledged within the film is that the actual like cinematography that they do here is really cinematic. They really go for some like shots. There are like these lengthy, uh, you know, like tracking shots, one takes throughout, which of course, you know, you can do in an animated film with uh, more relative ease, but the storyboarding it takes to do that and like the, the ingenuity, like the creativity that kind of goes into planning such a thing uh, is usually not given to, to an animated film. You know, they usually don't think about cinematography in that way as much, but there's a lot of really great shots throughout. I feel like that I, as I was watching it the last time, I put on commentary a few times and they were describing it not as an animated film, but as cinematography and as shots that they were taking. Like, uh, they actually planned out something that was more um, more Amblin-like, and it is an Amblin movie, right? Like, it, it fits into that mold also. It might be. It, I think it calls upon a lot of those things in memory. I think that's another reason why I feel like it's so like timeless and relatable is that it taps, it's, it taps it's like into that. It's based in 85, right? Like that's the, the setting. It seems like it. We were, we were talking about it uh, when we were watching last night. We're like, when is this story set? Because we were looking at like, mm, they got cordless phones. So it has to be like late 80s or 90s, you know, around that time. 85 or 86 here. Yeah, it's definitely something like that. And it's obviously calling to mind like similar stories. Like it's very kind of Goonies-esque, of course, like Chowder is obviously supposed to, you know, be like like that from there. Uh, and it, and it's got that. And, it, and we love as well how it really taps into those kind of more perilous uh, films from the, the 80s for kids' adventure films and stuff. You know, like this, this feels like a genuine danger and it's not afraid to be genuinely scary. Uh, I know, uh, and, and the, the writer for the film, of course, I think uh, this was one of the early successes from Dan Harmon, who went mm-hmm. on to do Community and Rick and Morty. He's, he's kind of distanced himself from it now because he thinks the, they made the film way more scary than he had intended in his script, which is a shame because I think that's one of its major strengths is that it doesn't hold back from being genuinely a horror film. It's also, I think, like the 11th PG uh, animated film, I believe. Um, it's, I mean, there there weren't so many animated kids films that actually got the PG. So uh, that was interesting at the time. Um, there's, I, for me, like you look at like the first shot, right? As the prime example of the choreography and the cinematography working together, like we're following the lead. It like harkens back to like my favorite uh, Halloween anime film, Halloween Tree, which is like you get a sense of season and town 
uh, with that one, you have Ray Bradbury narrating about what fall is and about the falling of the leaves. And then uh, in this one, it follows like the path of the leaf. And it's so perfect because it goes with the girl on the trike and, you know, la, 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 la. I just like how she does that and then lands on like the yard of the guy and the leaf like being sucked into the house. It's it's such good visual and like a one shot that it works so well. And there, there's so many sequences like that. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of like those following tracking shots as they kind of get whisked into the house as well. Or like the finale when they're up on the crane and they're, you need to swing around. The camera is fluid the entire time there, which is a great thing that the medium of animation allows for, but filmmakers often don't capitalize on. They don't, you know, take the opportunity to make the camera is truly, you know, uh, all, you know, all knowing and move, uh, moving everywhere as they can. It reminds me so much of being a kid at around Halloween too, because we'd use that night for, you know, a lot of pranks and getting into trouble and uh, trying to find like excuses to like spy on neighbors and uh, finding <laughs> out like, you know, you really want to believe in like the weirdness of the holiday and you kind of want something spooky and weird to happen on its own, right? Like, I mean, we dress as though we're going to conjure some kind of spirit or something. And then, I mean, there, there's something about the holiday that you kind of want to be wrapped up in like a neighborhood plot and, and have like the terror across the street, which is like a huge like Stephen King invention. I mean, it's it's all in there. Well, there is always that that you know idea of there's this one spooky house you know that you you dare your friends to go up to or whatever, uh, you know one that has a reputation around the the neighborhood. And I think the film again it it nails that feeling of suburban Halloween so perfectly, and and that's why I love every year. This is the first film we watch for for our marathons because it just puts us right in the perfect mindset for for the Halloween spirit. It kind of captures everything I want, you know, the the feeling of it, the the childlike uh, imagination, you know, the the fall atmosphere and everything going on, and of course, like the the genuine horror and fun has had there. But I I think of everything, the biggest strength the film has is just this really great writing. It's very funny still. <laughs> I think it's a, a hilarious movie and. Uh, it doesn't, uh, again, like with the horror, it doesn't pander to children. It's it's really kind of adult-oriented in many places. <laughs> oh, what's happening to my body? <laughs> I love the dad in this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he doesn't get much screen time, but it's perfect what he does because he's, like, kind of on his way to, like, the dental convention. And, and he gets, like, three gags right away that are, are really funny. Just like a funny dad doesn't really care about this. Uh, kind of wants the kid to fend for himself and have his own coming-of-age thing. Yeah, because well, he's talking about, like, when they catch DJ looking out the window. He's like, oh, I used to do that, too. But it wasn't old men I was looking at. It was those <laughs> Johnson twins or whatever he says. Right. Uh, the dad's funny. He runs over chowder in the car. Yeah, that's, no, that's a funny. And Chowder is, of course, just like they think this hilarious, you know, character. They really nail that kind of like chubby, you know, kid uh, kind of character really well. And he's he's so dorky and and you know funny and, and dumb. I, I think he has the 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 most famous line from it where they're in the house and they you know they hit the uh, the uvula you know uh, and he's like <laughs> oh it's a so it's a girl house, <laughs> which of course is like I think one of the more adult oriented jokes there yeah i love when when the girl walks into his room too he's on the phone with his dad he's like uh oh yeah uh did you have some beer there you know he, like, he's pretending that he's a badass suddenly Chowder yeah. is, is very funny <laughs> he's he's really great uh and uh, again i think all the, the characters are very fun i think you know dj is a very good uh you know audience and 
analog character as well, you know, and has his own uh, personality. And uh, I believe Jenny is her name, the the other one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's really um, great. She's she's got that good uh, attitude as well to her. You know the the smarts of a you know girl, but also like she fits into the bit there really well. I think the only regrettable thing is that they do lean into the romance bit a little too much when there's just such a great like you know cast of uh, you know like like friend characters all kind of together there. You I know. think it would, it would have more value if it were just friendship and they didn't play off that eighties right. angle of like, romance. Uh, Obviously, you could have like the the guys kind of like approaching her as a you know romantic prospect as first, but being like flatly rejected and then just kind of working as a trio. Uh, I think you know it's kind of more in spirit with the kind of films they're they're going for anyway. There, uh, so that little, that, that kiss moment at the end is a little like ah, uh, you know, it, it feels a little forced within the story, but uh, you know, it's it's fine. I see why it works as a narrative convention. <laughs> I just like the feeling of it all. It feels it feels of autumn and it um it has a good sense of personality that's pretty unique and distinct within animation and there are a lot of like children's horror films and a lot of them hedge a lot darker than this but this uh, uh something about its early polygonal dreamcast look i also find appealing and nostalgic oh absolutely i think in and in that aspect of it has made it age better than uh probably most anything like those other those other motion capture films are are not going to age well because this one makes it part of the style so much uh, as opposed to trying to go for, for realism. I think that's, that's the real problem that people have with the Zemeckis films is that it hits mm. the, the valley there where everything looks off and, and unreal. Whereas this one makes it a visual style uh, distinctly. And so that's why it's, it's aged well, but uh, at the same time, I understand if people take issue with the animation here in, you know, 2020, almost 15 years later. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it shows its age quite a bit, but not in any way that, that my daughter's not like entranced by it, um, which for me shows the sign of animation that can age when she's able to engage already. Yeah, and like I said, I think the house itself is just a great animation within, a, within itself. Like it's got so many moving parts to it, all of the, the wood plank teeth and everything. It, it really is, like I feel like they concentrated a lot of their efforts into it and made it look great and i i think it ages very you know very well and just the idea of it of course is is really great um you know this idea of a living house that's a it's a genuine monster and chase them around the town it is a little silly by the time you get to the climax where the house is like roaming the streets and none of the neighborhoods apparently acknowledge it <laughs> yeah it, it goes for a long time too like that part of the that stretch of the movie is really long for what it is I think it ends up, it culminates in a great climax. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a lot of fun and adventurous. It does have those, like, the, that fake out moment where you think you beat the house, but then, you know, it comes back, which, of course, is a horror staple. Uh, I like but, how it looks like a, one of the, like, over-designed Transformers with, like, all the yeah. jagged pieces. <laughs> like, it looks like a, it looks like one of those Michael Bay creations, but actually good. Exactly. Like, it, it, it has a bit more purpose to it. Uh, one of my favorite jokes that I caught this time was earlier in the film, which kind of comes back around is that, uh, you know, because the, they set up the, the location of the construction zone early on in the film, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for the climax there. But on that sign, I don't know if you saw it, there's like a little blurb on it that says, we've drained the lake. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that this time. I thought that was just a funny thing. Like, and, and, and part of why the world of the film feels so filled out as well and really like kind of considered that like 
they've they've drained this lake for infrastructure to come through and i i was like oh this is a horrible like capitalistic nightmare going on in the background of the stories that there's going to be like condominium set up after draining this giant lake that they had <laughs> right, right 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 uh drain the swamp yeah <laughs> message it was is just funny i i and again, I can't, uh, I, I always laugh at the film so much. I think the writing is so smart. The characters are very well sketched and it's got those, those great horror elements of it. Uh, I, I would hope that the rest of the world would think the same, but I don't think they do. But at the same I time- I don't think they found it either. I mean, I think you look at this movie on like Netflix and you see this animation style pop up and you're like, oh, it's probably something Netflix just put out. It looks like one of their shitty products or something. Yeah. But it has so much more charm if you actually like engage with it and went into it. Um, I, if it did fine anywhere, probably on Netflix, I doubt people are going to go like buy it just looking at what it is. Well, I think it's it's obviously very overlooked now and kind of forgotten. Uh, I think it it has a potential to be revived if enough people see it. Uh, I like it more than similar films which have gotten the cult treatment like uh, Trick or Treat. I think it's kind of a comparable film that kind of nails the same spirit. But, uh, you know, I feel like this is just such a better written and constructed film uh, in, in many ways. Uh, and again, it, it really appeals to me. Uh, it, and one of the things that I think why is because I noticed in the beginning is that uh, it's got a very Burton-y kind of feel in the beginning of it, for sure, in terms of like atmosphere, tone, score, all of that stuff. It really nails that, which which I feel like is a good kind of successor to to those films like Beetlejuice or like Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, and such. I mean, like my favorite one is obviously a TV movie. So right. Like that, <laughs> Yours is even that, more obscure, I'm sure. I, I'm pretty sure you're the only person who's seen that movie. <laughs> I found one yesterday. I found someone else who loved it to death yesterday. I mean, my dad's got tattoos of it, so at least us two have seen it. <laughs> I I like that movie because you have like Montroud. I need a I need a character named like Nevercracker Montroud to really get into a villain. <laughs> I've got to uh, watch that one sometime. And then... By the way, next year, once we're done with COVID, I want to invite you out and we can watch Halloween Tree and do a show on it or something. Yeah, let's let's do that one next year, I think. Maybe we'll make Since that I one the Halloween it, yeah. film. I mean, I could I could probably find it somewhere. Who knows? But uh, I, I think that would be a good one for, for next year, too. Like, this year, we did my animated Halloween favorite, and next year, we'll do yours. <laughs> and we could watch it in person, hopefully, because, I don't know, this year's been weird, and we have got a lot of watches together. Yeah, no, we definitely need to. Uh, I'm very sad that this year has prevented us from getting together more often, <laughs> particularly during this most favorite holiday that, that we you know, like since we, we both share so much this time of year um, that it would be so great to be able to watch this together. Um, next year, we'll make up for it somehow. Yeah, you know, because what we usually do is that there were years where we would host like a an uh, open house the entire month and just like we gave our friends out calendars with like literal like the movies listed on every day what was going to be here. Be like, show up at five o'clock and we're going to be here. And we're going to have food and, you know, you can watch horror movies with us the entire month. We can't do that, of course, anymore. Uh, yeah. part, partly because of COVID, partly because we have no friends. But, you know, it's... it's <laughs> I, I think it's one more than the other. <laughs> yes, I think uh, I think COVID takes care of friends anyway. Uh, it kind of takes them away in some sense. So uh, next year, though, you'll be able to. Yeah, sure. but but I'm so glad that this was one I could pass on to you, uh, and now has made your your list. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great thing is it's generational, right? Like I didn't experience this as a kid, and if I experienced it just as an adult alone, I would have uh, probably 
I would have wondered why, but uh, with my kid now, you know, it's one of her favorite movies and no doubt she'll pass it on and watch it every holiday. So that's great. That's, yeah, I think that's wonderful. So slowly I'm building up the, the generational <laughs> movement to revive Monster House uh, one one family at a time. <laughs> it's it's so good. I mean, it's so original. I, I even think of raising my score sometimes because even because of like the technical side that I think is iffy. It, well, it grows on you. I think it grows on you. I think every year I, you're going to like it more and more. <laughs> I've been considering it today. Like, well, my favorite's like a TV movie that's barely animated. I mean, come <laughs> on. It's, it's going to be fine if I give this an 8 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think it's a, a really great film. You know, I love it just so much. I, I keep saying that, but I, I really do. Of course. And, that's fair. <laughs> It's one of those films, like, I think there's a lot of them that we come across, especially animated films. I don't know, some of them, when they when they ingratiate them within your childhood, they're just going to stick with you like that, and they're going to stand out. And this one's definitely, like, my perennial Halloween favorite. I'm so happy it is, too, because I'm so happy we're not doing, like, Nightmare Before Christmas. I'd be like, yeah, tell me about your poems that you wrote about it. But we, we, we did that last year, though. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have that I was we quoting did. our conversation from last year. That's true. <laughs> but no, I, we I had think that exact conversation. This is getting uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll wrap it up then. Thanks again, Calvin, for watching this one again with me. Uh, and here's to a great Halloween going forward. Happy Halloween. Hopefully, it's better than this week. <laughs> Hopefully, the country turns around and you get your candy. All right, I, I stopped. <laughs> From that day we arrived on the planet And blinking stepped into the sun There's more to see than can ever be seen More to do than can ever be done